Uh, morning, friends. It's really a great privilege and honour to be with you this morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to be uh, reading this morning, I, I think, probably one of the most famous parables um, that Jesus ever gave. But um, I want to... I want to say to you too, I think it's also one of the most misunderstood uh, parables of Jesus. I'm going to read um, this morning from verse 21 through to verse um, 37. Um, just as we, just before we do that though, I wonder if you could put your, leave your finger in your Bibles at, at Luke chapter 10. And then just flip over very quickly to Acts chapter 17. And I just want to read to you one verse. Um, this is a verse that I often encourage my own congregation with up in Sydney. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really great um, reminder for us all, particularly whenever we're hearing God's word. It says this in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Isn't that interesting? Here is the Apostle Paul preaching God's word. Um, and the Bereans are of noble character. Why? Because they didn't just believe what they heard, but they tested it. And I think that's a great example for us all. If we want to be of noble character, it's not just to believe what the preacher says, but to search the scriptures and to see if what the preacher is saying is true. And uh, I want to say this particularly to you this morning as we come to this passage. Like I just said, I think it's one of Jesus' most misunderstood uh, passages. I want to bring to you um, a contextual reading, uh, which I think slightly changes, um, I think, the emphasis in this passage. Um, and I, I'm going to say to you up front, be like the Bereans. Test what I say and see if what I'm saying is true. So I'm going to start by reading from verse 21. And brothers and sisters, this is God's word. At that time, Jesus, full of, the holy, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? 
He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he, then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the first parables of Jesus I can ever remember hearing a sermon on. Unfortunately, I grew up in a church where the Bible was never really taught, or at least not in a way that was meaningful or clear. But I'll never forget the priest's explanation of this particular passage because I thought that it was particularly interesting. I think I just started in high school and he said that we all have Samaritans in our lives which are difficult to love. People from different cultural backgrounds. Or today he'd probably say sexual identities. That we might be naturally averse to associating with. People whom we view as being the other and whom Jesus rebukes and says that we should love as our neighbour. And so this particular priest said, if we truly want to be Christian, then we have to sacrificially lay down our lives for people such as these, if we want to inherit eternal life. Ever since then, I think I've spoken to quite a few people um, who think something similar. But while it was a memorable message, and there is even, I think, a degree of truth in what, he's, in what they're saying, I think it's almost the complete opposite to what Jesus intends and means. If you still have your Bibles open, I'll show you what I mean. Because, as always, the key to understanding anything in the Bible but especially a parable, is to read it in its original context. 
And in this instance, it's broader than most people realize, let alone appreciate. You see, if you look back to verse 21, you'll see that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as being hidden from the wise and the learned, but revealed to little children, to those who were just sitting before me. Following on from that, in verse 22, Jesus says that no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is the key to whether or not someone truly knows God and whether or not that hiddenness hiddenness of God is removed. And then finally, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus talks about how if you can see the true nature of the kingdom of God, then you are truly blessed. Because that is something that is not naturally given. That is something that must happen from above. Not even the prophets and the kings of the Old Testament were able to see or to hear of all of the things that were being revealed now through Jesus. They longed to look into them, but now you can see. Now, friends, if you put all of those truths together, you realize that to be able to comprehend the kingdom of God, to be able to see it and to hear it, is God's gift. It's something that you have to be spiritually empowered from from above. And so that should really give us reason to pause, to stop and to humble ourselves because what is about to happen next are spiritual truths which are to be spiritually discerned. Then in verse 25, Luke immediately introduces us to someone who is the opposite to what Jesus has just been talking about. Someone who is wise and learned. Someone who is proud and full of their own self-righteousness. He introduces us to an expert in the law. Someone who thinks that he knows everything when he doesn't even have the first clue as to who he's even talking to. Take a look again at how he refers to Jesus in verse 25. And notice that he refers to him merely as teacher. Now, while that is, you know, respectful, um, it's hopelessly insufficient. Uh, If you have been reading through Luke's gospel up until this point, you'll realize that a teacher is the very least that Jesus is. It would be like um, Scott Morrison coming here this morning, the Prime Minister of Australia, and one of the elders introducing him as um, a public servant. (laughs) Obviously, he is that. But he is so much more. He is the public servant. And it's exactly the same with Jesus. Just before this, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
and Moses and Elijah stand next to him. Why? Well, Moses represents the law. He's the father of all that God revealed in that category, you could say. And Elijah is the father of the prophets. But what it's saying is when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration is all of those things, both the law and the prophets, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says, no matter how many promises that God has made in Scripture, they are yes in Jesus. Whether it's the temple, yes. Whether it's the sacrificial system, yes. Whether it's any prophecy, any promise that God has made, you cannot see it clearly until you see it through the spectacles of Jesus. That's where they find their yes. That's where they find their fulfillment. I think one of the central themes to the Gospel of Luke is Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Every passage in Luke can really be summarized by that central theme verse. Jesus is not just a teacher. He's the saviour of the world. He's God incarnate. Not only does this expert in the law then fail to understand who he's talking to, but he doesn't even believe that he himself needs saving. How do we know that? Well, because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, did you notice before in the Bible reading from Deuteronomy 6? After all, this is the best advice I can give all of us about parenting, for those of us who are parents. You teach them, your children, all the time as you're walking along the road, as you're sitting at the table. There is always a great opportunity to be talking about God and his word and his truth. I look back, I've got, Angie and I have six children the best quiet times that we have with our children, the most formative times are taking them to school in the morning where we pray, where we talk about God's word, where we shape exactly the, the, the things, the priorities that God wants them to believe and how he wants them to live. But notice, and this is the other thing that parents will quickly understand when you do this, is the children will always go, Why? Why? Why do I have to do this? Well, the Bible actually gives you the answer because of the gospel. Did you notice that in Deuteronomy 6? When your child says, why do we have to obey all these laws? Because God rescued us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We have been saved from God's wrath to obey. But friends, what we do is we flip it all the ways the other way around, we make the same mistake as this expert of the law. And we think, like with our children, that if you just obey all of these things, then you will be saved. It's the opposite. Jesus does something at this point which is incredibly uh, important. He points him back to the law. Uh, not because that's the way to be saved, but that's the way you first understand that you need salvation. The law is like an x-ray that shows us that we're sinners. Uh, this is such an important truth, friends. Turn over to Acts chapter 13 for a minute with me and I'll show you what I mean. Um, Acts chapter 13, I'm just going to read you two verses, verse 30, 38 and 39. A lot of people miss this, but Luke wrote most of the New Testament. 
if you count up the number of verses and you include Luke-Acts. Um, and it's Luke that helps us to understand exactly what the Apostle Paul means, particularly by the, the theme of justification. Verse 38, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. You see, according to both Paul and Jesus, no one can be justified by obeying the law. Did you notice how that particular term is used twice? It doesn't come up that often in the New Testament. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 10, take a look at how the expert in the law responds to Jesus. And in particular, what Luke says about him in verse 29. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked, and who is my neighbor? Oh boy. Could this man be any more full of himself? He has just quoted verbatim that the law instructs us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then to top it all off, to love your neighbour as yourself. And all he can say is, and who exactly is my neighbour? What he's saying is, I don't have a problem with loving God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And I can love my neighbour as myself. Just Can you just clarify exactly who should be the recipient of my benevolent, sinless love? Really? We'll come back and consider Jesus' answer more carefully to this question in just a minute. But notice that this man is asking, this expert in the law, who exactly he should love. As if all of that other stuff is so achievable, the only question this guy has is, who is my neighbour? He truly is blind. He truly is deaf. He cannot see the king or his kingdom. And as such, the reality of the kingdom of God remains hidden from him. Now, what Jesus does next, though, is, is stunning. Because you, Could you imagine sharing the gospel with somebody that's like this? I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I don't believe that I'm a sinner. I'd be thinking, I'm sorry, I've got nothing. <laughs> There's nothing more I can say. Jesus tells him a parable. And it's, can I just say, parables are not illustrations. They're what I call tricky stories. They're stories with a hidden meaning or twist. A tale that has a hidden meaning for those with ears to hear and eyes to see. Now, saying something like this makes a lot of conservative evangelicals really nervous. And even one of my heroes, the great John MacArthur, who I have a lot of admiration and respect for, completely rejects like sort of the hidden meaning they call the allegory. Uh, in fact, he goes on to say, and I quote, there are no allegories in scripture. There is nothing that has some kind of secret 
hidden meaning that must be uh, mystically discerned, end quote. Unfortunately, he's wrong. Not only does that statement go against what Jesus has just said about the kingdom in verses 21 and 23, it is hidden and it does need to be revealed, but it is directly contradicted by passages like Galatians 4. In particular, if you're taking notes, Galatians 4 verse 24, Hagar and Sarah, Paul says, are figurative or literally in Greek, allegorical. Of, they are allegorical of two covenants. One representing a covenant based on works of the law, the other symbolising a covenant based on faith according to God's promise. So quite clearly, Scripture sometimes, let me emphasise that, sometimes uses allegory to teach certain truths, especially when it comes to the doctrine of justification. The problem is, is when we want to see everything allegorically. So what does this parable then mean? Well, the expert in the law is supposed to identify with who? Well, it's the guy who is beaten up, left on the side of the road for dead. This parable, you could say, is really the parable of the half-dead guy. Because, yeah, thanks. I had the same reaction when I first heard it. Because, you see, this is one of the primary things that the law of God does. It reveals to us how helpless we are, that we're blind, that we're deaf, and that spiritually before God, we're half dead. By the way, did you notice where the man was traveling from? He was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jesus doesn't often mention place names much in his parables, and so the fact that he does this time should alert us to something. Why? Well, Jerusalem is where the temple is. It's, where, it's the center of Israelite worship. What's famous about Jericho? Jericho is the place, if you remember your Sunday school, that people you know, marched around the walls and it all came crashing down after they blew their trumpets. But here's the thing you must also know about Jericho. Jericho was the cursed city, the city that was never to be rebuilt and that God warned in his word in Joshua 6, whoever rebuilt the city of Jericho would lose his firstborn son. So this was a place that any faithful Israelite shouldn't go. It's like the, the red light district of Israelite worship. You're going to Jericho? Whoa, I don't know about that. And someone like an expert in the law would have understood this because he's an expert. The question is, why would this guy be going from Jerusalem to Jericho? He's going in the completely opposite direction. You could almost say if you were being self-righteous, you know, after seeing him beat up, if you were a proud and self-righteous Jew, well, it serves him right. But this is where the parable gets really pointed, especially for someone who is a proud Jew because the priest doesn't save him. The Levite doesn't save him. The two men who represented the whole of Israelite religion and worship, they don't help. 
Instead, they cross over to the other side and they do nothing. Now, you've got to really stop at this point and feel the weight of disappointment that this man would have felt. Because he wasn't to be blamed for the state he was in. He desperately needed someone to show him mercy, to love him and to help him. And you would think as an expert of the law, as he was, someone who was proud and was self-righteous and had kept the law of God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength, that surely he of all people deserved this help. These were, these were his people. But as we all know, the only person who stops to show him mercy and to help him is a Samaritan. Someone who he would have hated and despised. In fact, um, if you take a look at John 8, 48 sometime, John 8, 48, you'll see that this is precisely how Jesus' enemies referred to him. The Jews said in John 8, 48, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? You go, whoa, whoa, demon-possessed and a Samaritan? And they're going, yeah, yeah. You're on the same level here, Jesus. And indeed, at the end of Luke chapter 9, even Jesus' own disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven on what? On a Samaritan village. You don't see them normally saying that, don't you, when the Jews reject him. But when the Samaritans, when the Samaritans reject Jesus, they're the ones that are saying, you know what, let's go the full Elijah. Prophets of Baal time, Jesus. We can do this. You know we can. We've seen you do all the miracles. Let's call down fire from heaven. Let's bring the judgment forward. It's because the Samaritans are the archetypal enemies of God. And yet in Jesus' parable, this Samaritan does the unthinkable. He's filled with pity for the man. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn to be cared for. He leaves two silver coins that would have covered all of his costs for the next two months. And he says if there's any extra costs during his recovery, he'll reimburse the innkeeper in full. This Samaritan guy is crazy. Crazy generous. It's almost unbelievable generosity. It's almost... Almost the, um, almost the most unbelievable act of grace you could ever imagine. Almost. Because isn't this precisely what the Lord Jesus does for us? Haven't you been beaten up and left on the side of the road because of your sin? Haven't you been rejected and scorned by the religious leaders? who cannot save, who just want to load onto your back the burden of good works? And haven't we been helped by someone who by nature we would despise? Someone who in just a few chapters' time in Luke will be riding a donkey into Jerusalem. 
Someone who has done everything to save us from our sins so that we might inherit eternal life. See, friends, when you look at it like that, how can you not see that the Good Samaritan is Jesus? Now, the major objection that people make to accepting this line of interpretation, as I said before, remember the verse in Acts, be like the Bereans, test what I say. Uh, I should just say, though, that this, what I just told you, was the unanimous interpretation of the early church for like the first five centuries and was the interpretation given by Augustine, Martin Luther. But the major objection that people make is this. How then are you to understand the challenge that Jesus makes to the man in verses 36 and 37? This is where you really have to put your thinking caps on. Especially the line where Jesus says to go and do likewise. Well, there are two things to say. The first is we need to go back and we need to pay extra careful attention to the question that Jesus asks the expert in the law in verse 36. Because Jesus actually flips his original question upside down. And you see, back in verse 29, the expert in the law asks Jesus to clarify for him who his neighbour is that he should love. Now in verse 36, he asks him, which one was a neighbour to the man whom he should be, have been identifying with all along? Do you see? Legal experts are really frustrating this way. I've found this out as a pastor in New South Wales, especially during COVID. There's all this legal speak around COVID health regulations. You've got it free and easy, can I just say, here in Tasmania. We still aren't allowed to sing unless we have masks on. And then if we have masks on, we've got to be four square metres from the nearest person. So is it a requirement? Is it a guideline? I don't know. But there's legal speak which is really careful and really precise. They use words specifically and they use words deliberately. So when the man asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, the expert could have actually objected at this point and goes, uh, excuse me, that was not the question that I asked. I don't want to know who showed me love. I want to know whom I should love. All of which means that when Jesus says, go and do likewise, Ultimately, he's saying, go and do nothing. Instead, go and find mercy. Do that. Mercy from someone whom you don't respect and who you'll probably even despise, but someone who is right in front of you. A saviour like a Samaritan. A saviour like someone like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not to be like Jesus. Of course, we're to go and do what Jesus does. But the original context of what he's saying to this man is something more profound. Can you see the hidden meaning of God's kingdom? 
that you're saved by faith and not by works. It's why Jesus says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's why he came. Not to give more teaching, but to offer his life as a ransom for many. Now, of course, we all reflect Christ's character in how we are to respond. Although, once again, notice that the Samaritan is the one doing the loving and not receiving the loving. It wasn't about trying to go out and find the Samaritans in your life. That was the Samaritan showing grace. So we should try to make, um, make this parable, I think if we try to make this parable a, a paradigm for social justice, I think it completely misses the point. Uh, in New South Wales, we have a, our social services committee is called Jericho Road, based on this passage. I think our evangelism committee should be Jericho Road. What Jesus has done for us also comes before how we should live. By the way, can I just say this interpretation, I think is further highlighted by what Luke alone records as what happens next. It's the famous incident involving Martha and Mary. Remember, Martha is running around doing all of those jobs that had to be done. All the people on the board of management right now are going, hey... (laughs) Whereas Jesus says in verse 42 that Mary was doing the one thing that was needed. Friends, what was the one thing that was needed? To do nothing. To sit quietly at Jesus' feet and to receive. The one thing that was needed was to stop working. To stop all the frantic activity and busyness and to receive. Do you see the hidden meaning of God's kingdom? Can you hear what Jesus is saying? One day after church, I had two women in my congregation in Wewar come up to me and they say, oh, you preachers, you're all the same. Why don't we ever hear a sermon about the good example that Martha was? Here we are, slaving after church, of getting the morning tea ready, doing everything during the week. And you, you preachers, you just do not appreciate the hard work that we do. So, well, uh, it's because Martha was in the wrong. You know, Mary did what was better and it wouldn't be taken from her. You see how easy it is for pride to creep in? You don't have to be an expert of the law to understand this of putting your confidence and finding your identity in your own performance rather than in Christ. Of thinking that our justification or our right standing before God is based on our works, are based upon what we do rather than what Christ has done. David Cook often says that's the great difference, isn't it, between Christianity and religion? All religion says do. Christianity alone says, done. Can you see the hiddenness of God's kingdom? Can you hear what the Lord Jesus is saying? You're blessed if you do. Angie and I um, have a print 
over our bed of Van Gogh's The Sower. Not a lot of people don't realise this, but Van Gogh was actually a Dutch Reformed missionary uh, before he was a painter. He had a tumultuous life and I think actually retained his faith throughout all of his life, even though he had incredible struggles. But this particular painting we have over our bed because it reminds us that we want our lives to be like good soil, to keep weeding out the weeds out of our lives. One of his greatest paintings of all, though, is not on display. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you would have seen in your orders of service. It shows us that quite clearly, Jesus is the one who actually saves us. My son Luke is an artist and uh, he was explaining to me all the intricacies and all the details about this painting. But when you look at it, he said, Dad, can't you see the emotion in it? That here is this man, this Samaritan who is saving this man, who is reaching out to him with mercy and grace and he was rescuing him from his sin. Can you see? Can you hear what Jesus is saying to you about his kingdom? You're blessed if you do. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one true living God. We thank you that you, in your sovereign grace, rescue us from darkness to light, that you transfer us from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of your Son and that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we pray that you would help us to rest in Jesus, to know of his love and of his mercy and of his forgiveness, and to stop working for our own salvation. And in response, Lord, to his salvation and his, and his redemptive love, that we would go and we would do likewise that we would love just as we have been loved, that we would forgive just as we have been forgiven. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.